Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast where we discuss Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Kathy and Karen. We are now in episode 12 of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an, or in Mandarin, Chang'an Shi Chen. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin. Additionally, we will reference translations from what is provided online, and we will also provide our own. For this podcast episode, we will first start off with an episode recap, then discuss the history portrayed in the episode, and then close out with some book differences. Over the last couple of episodes, the plot had been moving at a slower pace, and we're actually ramping back up again. To start, Li Bi back at Jing'anzi starts to act on his suspicions and has Xu Bin arrested. Li Bi points out that someone tore a page in a historical book that specifically documented the act of cutting hair for the wolf squad, thereby trying to hide crucial information about them from Li Bi. He suspects Xu Bin. Xu Bin was the one to give him the book, so of course his suspicion is the highest. However, Li Bi cannot confirm if Xu Bin really is the spy. He says as much to Yao Runeng, who is reminding Li Bi to be careful of his actions since they could be seen as representing the actions or orders of the crown prince. Li Bi realizes that someone must be a spy in Jing Anzi because at every turn, the right chancellor Lin Jiulong is one step ahead or just knows what's going on in Jing Anzi. Hopefully, the public act of arresting Xu Bin may cause some commotion to root out the real spy. Li Bi asks Yao Runeng if he can trust him only for Yao Runeng not to respond immediately, but be a little exasperated at Li Bi's suspicion. After all, in their youths, Yao Runeng says that he has never tried to compete against Li Bi in front of the crown prince. All he wants to do is see Li Bi and the crown prince succeed so that he can also enjoy a lavish post of basically doing nothing. That's all he wants. Li Bi seems appeased by this answer and asks Yao Runeng to continue searching for who else might have had access to that book. And at this point, he receives an urgent message via the watchtowers from Cui Qi that Zhang Xiaojing has sniffed out the escaped wolf squad members to Changming Fang. Let's rewind to see how and what happened here. In the last episode, Zhang Xiaojing and Cui Qi borrowed a very interesting dog to help sniff out Wen Ran's scent in order to find her and her two wolf squad captors. In a brief break they take while waiting for the dog to eat some food and return to the hunt, Cui Qi actually opens up to Zhang Xiaojing about why he wants to get promoted. Cui Qi says that he wants to get promoted to the right cavalry or Yo Xiao Wei because that's the only way he believes he can protect the people of Chang'an. When he first arrived with his brother, he spent 
three days and nights meeting all kinds of people. Just ordinary people going about their lives, not the rich and famous, or even the powerful, just folks doing what they needed to do to survive. While in the military, Cui Ti couldn't understand why he wanted those honors until he arrived in Chang'an. Cui Ti wants to have enough authority to protect these people because they, himself included, are just trying to do the best they can. The right cavalry, in his mind, protects the people of Chang'an, and that's what he wants to do. Zhang Xiaojing's demeanor softens upon hearing these words and ruefully advises Cui Ti to not be swallowed up by the city. Cui Ti promptly asks what he means by that, but Zhang Xiaojing just heads off with the dog. To me, these conversations are really the heart and soul of this drama that give deeper meaning to seemingly insignificant characters in history. As someone living in a big city, it is what I love about being in New York. The everyday people just going about their lives, or you could say our lives. It also certainly makes Cui Ti a more multifaceted individual who earlier tried to claim victory and was seen as arrogant and egotistical. But in reality, he is just trying to climb the ladder himself to help live out his brother's dreams and his own of protecting the people of Chang'an. And notice, he doesn't talk about crown or country, only the people. Eh, I wouldn't say crown. I would say uh, he doesn't care about imperial power or country. He only cares about the people. I don't think the likes of Sui Ti or Zhang Xiaojing, for that matter, care too much about politics or what happens at court if it means that they just need to be able to protect the ordinary people of Chang'an. While Zhang Xiaojing and Sui Ti are on the hunt, Long Bo and his crew are currently making their next moves. They get an unexpected visit from two strangers wearing white robes. What's interesting is Cao Poyan and Ma Ge recognize them. At first, they're like, these two were the fiercest warriors from the wolf squad. But then those two in the robes immediately get beaten up by Yu Chang. Cao Poyan and Ma Ge are essentially dumbstruck. They're like, what? What did you do to the fiercest warriors? This is a farce. Only to realize that their image of what the wolf squad should be like has been shattered. I feel like both of us burst out laughing because I thought it was supposed to be suspenseful, but it entirely went the other way, where we were both like, guys, I know you are currently holding on to this dream, this image, but look at these guys right here, these white-robed figures. They're all ready to get payment and just, like, ditch you guys. (laughs) Poor Wolf Squad members. I mean, it's kind of sad what they have been reduced to. Like, they're on their knees begging for forgiveness uh, by the likes of Longbo. That is shocking. And it's interesting because no matter how fierce we saw the Wolf Squad members at the beginning of the drama were and how big of a threat the rest of the court sees them, they are currently being played like a fiddle by Longbo. He's leaving three cards of whatever they have for these four Wolf Squad members to use as a diversion. Longbo is like, I'm not using my own men, but these men can be used to die for them. He calls Cao Poyan aside and gives him a flask with specific instructions. Cao Poyan then heads off to find a number of homeless people. 
and he gives a specific person the flask, and an exchange is made. Shortly after, Zhang Xiaoqing and Cui Qi make their way to Changmingfang. Seeing that it's rather destitute with no nearby watchtowers, Zhang Xiaoqing instructs Cui Qi to give word back to Jing Anzi for backup while he goes off on his own. I'm rather touched that Cui Qi tells Zhang Xiaoqing to be careful after their heart-to-heart -heart just now. In previous episodes, I was very, very angry at Cui Qi for just being so dismissive of Zhang Xiaoqing, but I do like this little bromance that is brewing over here. After they separate, Zhang Xiaojing and the dog are still following the scent when he gets poorly tailed by the homeless men. And we were chuckling because their leader, Jia Shiqi, gives a little monologue on how someone wants Zhang Xiaojing killed and immediately crumples after one punch or slap from Zhang Xiaojing. Once the man is conscious again, he very plainly spills that he's only doing this because he got a super cool looking flask one from the military that it seems like Zhang Xiaojing recognizes. This Jia Shiqi is also quite quick to take Zhang Xiaojing to wherever the person hiring him came from. Tensions rise as we can feel Zhang Xiaojing nearing the wolf squad hiding a spot while Long Bo heads off with his convoy and the wolf squad is waiting with their orders. Yu Chang is over there being overly jealous again and forces Magar to kill Wenran whom Yu Chang cannot stand. Wen Ren is forced to jump down a well, seemingly killed, and even Cao Po Yan is like, I sincerely hope my own daughter never meets a woman as nasty as you to Yu Chang. Like, yes, thank you. Yu Chang, you need to calm down. You also do not know the backstory between Wen Ren and Long Bo. Why are you going off on this killing rampage just because you think this woman might fight for his infections? Jeez, like seriously. I have a lot of problems with the character of Yu Chang. It's pretty easy to see that the next few episodes are going to be action-packed, but let's rewind a bit to talk about the other storyline at play. Now, uh, the Prince of Yong we met in the last episode, and we will elaborate a little bit more in this episode, or Yong Wang, meets with the leader of the Blaze Gang, Feng Dalun. So we find out that they are in cahoots with each other. Yong Wang meets Feng Dalun after that direct order from Zhang Xiaojing via Tan Qi from the last episode. They discuss their next steps because they don't necessarily want to step on anyone's toes, aka the crown prince's toes, but they do want to enact revenge on Zhang Xiaojing. Though Feng Dalun is really quite the idiot because he doesn't realize that he's captured Wang Yunxiu instead of Zhang Xiaojing's woman. Following the Prince of Yong's orders, though, Feng Dalun says he has just the person to help the Prince of Yong, a man from the Court of Judicature, or Da Li Si. This man is extremely eager to rise up the ranks, and he will absolutely jump at this opportunity. The person in question, Yuan Zai. And next, we jump to one of the oddest introductions of a person in a Chinese drama that I've seen. We see a man being surrounded by a number of very large women listening to intel from another young, plump girl about the right chancellor. These women are helping him block the wind in order for him to better perfume himself. Hmm. 
From the language, we see that this guy is only a lowly official of the eighth rank and has literally no money left. All of his money was used to gather intel. But he is quite cunning in trying to assess the mind of the right chancellor with the tidbits of information he is able to gather. And he is trying to capture his and whatever opportunity that comes his way. When I was watching this scene, I was reminded of The Incredibles, you know, that Pixar movie. There is a line there from Edna Mode that is ingrained in my brain. And that line is, luck favors the prepared. Yuan Zai, in this instance, completely embodies that. He's like, I have a premonition that tomorrow they will make it big. And right after he says that, a messenger arrives with a summons. That's it for the plot for this podcast episode. Let's move on to our history discussion. In the very beginning of the episode, when Zhang Xiaojing and Cui Qi are having their heart-to-heart, Zhang Xiaojing asks why Cui Qi wants to be promoted. Cui Qi lists off several people that he met in Chang'an just going about their day. One of the people listed was a Li Shi'er, who was practicing dancing until the soles of her feet were worn. In the drama, it is unclear if this Li Shi'er is a man or a woman, but in history, there was a very famous dancer, Li Shi'er, who was a pupil of the famous Lady Gongsun, who stunned the Tang Dynasty populace with her beauty with the sword. She was a dancer, and the dance was basically called Sword Dance, or Jian Wu. This Lady Gongsun was famous in the early years of Emperor Tang Xuanzong's reign and performed regularly at the palace. It is said that her dancing inspired countless poets and scholars with her performances, including the sage of cursive script Zhang Xu. The Chinese poet Du Fu wrote an ode depicting the beauty and wonders of Lady Gongsun's sword dance. In that poem, there was a reference to her pupil, this Li Shi'er. Through this pupil, others in the Tang Dynasty were able to see the beauty of this dance. However, all we know about this Li Shi'er is through two lines in the poem. In this drama, we just get a fleeting reference to a Li Shi'er who is practicing dance. So it could be this pupil of Lady Gongsun, It might not be, but I just thought it would be really interesting to bring this forward as a little history tidbit. Moving on, we were briefly introduced to the Prince of Yong or Yong Wang in the last episode, and we get a few glimpses of him here. Let's take some time to provide his backstory and lay the groundwork for the individual that he is. The Prince of Yong, Li Lin, born Li Zhe, was the 16th prince of the Emperor Tang Xuanzong and born to Consort Guo. This is all what we see in the drama. It is unclear when he was born as there were no surviving records. What we do know is that the young boy's mother died when he was young and was subsequently raised by his older brother, Li Sisheng, who then became crown prince in 738. We actually hear all of this in the drama. The crown prince loved this younger brother and often held him to sleep. This is similar to what is actually said in the drama, that the prince of Yong and the crown prince are very close. In 725, the then Li Zhe was bestowed the title of Yong Wang, 
In 727, he became the governor of Jinzhou. Then in 736, he was granted a name change of Li Lin. There isn't too much recorded history of the Prince of Yong up until the 750s, which is in the future. I'll just say that the Prince of Yong grew up rather sheltered in the capital and had aspirations that did not match his capabilities. We'll leave it at that for now, as he will pop up in later episodes. Speaking of new characters, let's talk about this weird new man who works at the court of judicature, or Da Li Si. This man is called Yuan Zai. When we first meet him, he is sitting in a bare room with a cute little servant surrounded by rather large women to keep him warm.、Uh, so, who is he? It isn't a hundred percent clear the year he was born, but probably sometime in the seven tens. There are some records that say he was born in seven thirteen, but it's not fully confirmed. He came from a very poor family, but was intelligent and studious as a boy. He was sharp and a quick learner, and wrote excellent reports. In 741 A.D., Yuan Zai successfully passed the imperial entrance exams and received a post at Da Li Si, which is where we see him now in 744 A.D. Yuan Zai, despite only being an official for a short while, was already well versed in the ways of politics and how to curry and gain favor. We see that on full display in this episode in a few short scenes. He is focused on why the right chancellor is so enamored with a specific poem. The guy definitely knew how to climb the government ladder, and let's just say that in this drama, he knew how to grasp at each and every opportunity. If I'm honest, he is one of my least favorite characters on screen, and I think they upped the ante of the ickiness in the drama versus the book. Like, I just get this icky feeling when he's on screen. Which I think is actually the point. We'll talk a little bit more about him in upcoming episodes when he meets his counterpart, and let's just say that every time they're on screen, I'm really unhappy. Speaking of grasping opportunities by Yuan Zai in the drama, when we first meet him, he is very interested in a specific poem written by Li Bai, and he's over here mulling why. The right chancellor is so interested in this poem. The poem is as such. It is called "Wu Ye Ti" or "The Crow's Evening Weep." Huang Yun Cheng Bian Wu Yu Ti, 归飞丫丫枝上啼。机中织锦秦川女，碧纱如烟隔窗雨。庭梭长然意远人，独宿孤房泪如雨。Here's my translation. The crows are returning to their nests from the yellow clouds near the city walls. When they land, the branches make a ya ya sound. The weaving woman from Qinchuan, through the green window screen, sees the two crows returning together, as if conversing with each other. But it is really only her talking to herself. She feels very alone. She's thinking about her family far away, and she stops weaving. Being alone brings heartbreak as tears. Flow down her cheek. This poem was most likely written around 730 or 731 by the very famous poet Li Bai. We raise his name once again because he is just everywhere in this drama. 
However, this poem didn't catch the attention of those in Chang'an until the early 740s. Li Bai returned to Chang'an in 741, and it was only then that He Zhizhang praised Li Bai's skills at poetry. He Zhizhang is our director He in this drama. He Zhizhang in history was so impressed with this poem and other poems that he praised Li Bai as a god from the heavens. Shortly after, He Zhizhang recommended Li Bai to the emperor, which is how Li Bai was finally able to return to the good graces of the emperor. On the surface, the poem depicts returning autumn crows, but then turns to the woman weeping about her isolation. However, for this drama, one can perhaps read it as a man who has been waiting for his chance. That is certainly how Yuan Zai read this poem, because he was like, Li Bai just spends his time at the brothels, he's never married, or he doesn't really know heartbreak, so why is he writing this poem, or what is his purpose for writing this poem? In the drama, Yuan Zai learns from his servants that the right chancellor has also been repeating this poem. Why, though? I believe it is because the right chancellor is trying to deduce why director He also really enjoyed this poem. This for the two men, the two very powerful men, really is a mind game between the two. If director He showed favor towards this poem, the right chancellor is trying to figure out why. It's the same for the right chancellor as well. If he favored a poem, everyone at court is then also pondering the reasons why. In this drama as well, we see that Yuan Zai is being prepared. He is understanding or learning about the favors or favoritism from both director He and the right chancellor so that he might play the right hand, which, as Karen said, luck favors the prepared, and he definitely is one of the most prepared in this drama. Lastly, let us take some time to discuss the eight ladies and the small young girl who were serving Yuan Zai. This will be more of a discussion on fashion and beauty aesthetics. During the Tang Dynasty, the preference for women was to actually be a little bit plumper and fuller. There is a Chinese saying, Huan Fei Yan Shou, which translates to noble consort Yang, plump, and consort Zhao Fei Yan, skinny. The noble consort Yang is from this era, and consort Zhao Fei Yan was from the Han Dynasty. The fact that being plump was used to describe noble consort Yang meant that women's beauty standards fluctuated to a point where being plump was a standard during that time. Why do I raise this? Is because in Chinese dramas, we rarely see plumper women on screen anymore. Most right now, especially, are so stick thin. So it's quite refreshing to see eight larger women in this particular episode perhaps embody the actual beauty standards of the day. We'll get to see Noble Consort Yang later, or Yen later in the drama, and she definitely is not plump. There is a behind-the-scene clip where the drama production company stated they searched for the entire country to find women of this body shape to be in this, you know, two-minute scene. Literally, they scoured the entire country. So another instance of good job for this um, production company for putting so much effort into, you know, seemingly insignificant moments that actually add a lot of color to this drama. 
As for the chubby little girl, she is sporting a smaller girl hairstyle called the ya bin. She also has a small moth hair accessory, which was commonly worn during the Lantern Festival as moths are nocturnal. As for each of the eight ladies, they are all sporting uniquely different hairstyles, eyebrows, and clothing. For the drama, it's kind of a little bit harder for me to depict or pick out which one is which, but spend a little bit more time enjoying this particular aesthetic with the plumper women because we, as Karen mentioned, rarely see that in Chinese dramas. The women of the Tang Dynasty were also less restricted than women of any other Chinese dynasty. So you could say that they were probably most powerful in terms of women's rights or independence and power over a thousand years ago in the seven, six or 600s to 700s. That extended to the clothes they wore. During the Tang Dynasty, showing a little bosom was not scandalous. So we did see some of that in paintings and pottery figures. That is also why in several, I would say older Tang Dynasty dramas, we did see a little bit of bosom. But now for this particular drama, and due to a little bit more censorship, I would say the clothing for Tang Dynasty dramas remain more PG. It's like, there used to be a lot more cleavage. Yes. <laughs> That's the reality. A lot more cleavage. Now it's like, nope, gotta cover up. In terms of book differences or similarities, again, the broad strokes are very similar. Uh, the fact that Zhang Xiaojing and the dog and Cui Qi were able to chase the Wolf Squad members to Changmingfang is accurate. The book also describes why Changmingfang is more destitute because it is on the southern part of the city. The more north you go, the more uh, splendid it is because it is closer to the palace. Whereas the farther south you go, the fang is much emptier and because nobody really focuses there. And that is why Changmingfang was a great place for Longbo to do his surreptitious activity. Interestingly, in the book, Yu Chang is not the one to push Wen Zhan into the well. She actually jumps by herself because she is trying to evade her captors. She's not meeting up with Longbo at this point. And so the end result is that Wen Zhan does end up in a well, just like she does in the drama, but it's not by Yu Chang's insistence. That closes out our discussion of episode 12 of The Longest Day in Chang'an. Let us know your thoughts. The music for this episode is Qingping Yue, played by yours truly, with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. As a friendly reminder, if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you are in the U.S., please feel free to head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV, that is J-U-B-A-O TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. They are available online on Jumo, or you can access them on Sling TV and Plex, as well as on TV on Xfinity and Cox Contour. Once again, all of this is free. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.